This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 511 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 511tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com, and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, you can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by GovX. And as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself. And GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. 
And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to episode 410 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Jason Lacayo. Now, Jason is a law enforcement veteran, a member of the Emergency Service Unit, which is their special operations team, and also one of the men behind Reps for Responders and the Inside the Labyrinth podcast. So we discuss a host of topics from his early life, the power of mentorship, community policing, fitness, defensive tactics, and so many other areas. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these amazing stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Jason Lacayo. Enjoy. Jay, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast, and now you are on the other side of the microphone the last time we spoke. Yeah, man, it's, 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 a, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Oh, I am in, um, currently right now I'm in Hawthorne, New York. This is uh, like five minutes away from my job, I, so I'm in the gym that I work at. So uh, when I'm not doing police work, I work at a small CrossFit gym. Actually, no, I shouldn't even say a small CrossFit gym, but a CrossFit gym called CrossFit uh, Northeast. We have two locations, one in East Chester, New York, and one in Hawthorne, New York. Beautiful. All right. Well, I'd love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born, and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Oh, man. Awesome. Okay. Uh, so I was born in um, Bronx, New York. Um, my two parents are from the country of Honduras, which is located in Central America. Both my parents came here in like their early teens. And um, basically they came over with a family member and then they got adjusted and then like other family members came along. So um, my brother and I were born here in, uh, in New York, in the Bronx. Um, my dad was a correction officer. He worked on Rikers Island for about 25 years. And my mother was a nurse. She did that for about 30 years. And, um, you know, it was a very interesting dynamic. I grew up in a very, very, very close knit family. Um, I always had aunts, uncles, you know, cousins around. So I was very much like, you know, that saying it takes a village to raise a child. I was very, very much a product of that. So, um, you know, if, if it wasn't my big brother looking out for me, it was like, uh, you know, my big cousin or, or an uncle making sure that I was, you know, walking the straight and narrow. And, um, 
you know, my mom uh, was a, is, is a huge part of my life because I think she's the one that kind of gave me the ability to learn how to like nurture and love. And um, I think that's very key for a, a young man to have just to have that balance. Cause my father was a very masculine alpha type role in the house, rightfully so. Right. And um, you know, my mom was just very much the, the lover and the nurturer. So I had a pretty good balance, you know, both my parents were blue collar, you know, workers and they taught us the value of working hard and, and holding yourself accountable and not making excuses, you know, for, for the shortcomings in your life, just kind of do the best you can put your best foot forward and just be a good human being. Beautiful. Well, with your dad being in corrections, um, something that I want to kind of really explore as we get down there is, is some of, some of the things that we've done, um, historically, whether it's the U S the UK that in my opinion, possibly maybe aren't working very well. And so I have addressed, you know, the correction system. I know in one of your interviews, you talked about 13th being one of your favorite um, documentaries and it is mine too. So what has yeah. your dad viewed through his career and in his conversations with you as far as, you know, the, the correction system in general? And if there's any kind of philosophies, principles, he thinks that could improve the way that we do that system. Um, yeah, my dad, so my dad grew up in, in like the inner city, you know, when he came here, that's, that's where they lived. They lived in the South Bronx. So he, you know, um, he, he saw how like the judicial system is set up and how it's kind of, um, you know, systematic oppression and so on. So, um, you know, my dad was in the military and then, you know, usually right after you get out of the military, most guys line up a job in law enforcement and, um, you know, my dad ended up taking the corrections job, but I think he always took it to kind of, you know, it it was a job, but it was more or less like my dad was one of those guys that would always have conversations with the inmates and, you know, um, let these guys know that there's a, there's a better way to, to go about, you know, life, you know, just because you're in here doesn't mean this is the end of, it, it's the end of all means. Um, you know, my dad used to always make us aware that, um, you know, the scales aren't always levied in our favor. You know, and, you know, that we had to always walk and be and be cognizant of the things that we're doing. Like maybe, you know, you do something it could be harmless in your eyes, but perceived to be, you know, dangerous or whatever in somebody else's eyes. So my dad just always taught us that, you know, no matter where you go, always be aware of your behaviors and your surroundings, because the the scales, like I said, weren't always put in our favor you know my dad always used to say there's a lot of uh there's a lot of me that is in there and you know when you hear that statement you know for a while as a kid i didn't really understand what he said and then as i got older you start to see that you know the majority of uh um, incarcerated people are you know black and brown people so um you know he just made us aware of that and um you know that was one of the reasons why my dad didn't want me to become a, a correction officer he wanted me to be a police officer you know Beautiful. Yeah. So I want to kind of unwrap that a little bit more as we get the other side of, you know, learning about your, your journey. So we got you on, you know, 16 years deep into law enforcement. But, uh, yeah, there's some definitely some interesting things. Um, I think the, you know, the, the conversations that we're all aware of, you know, the, these polarizing, opposing, you know, extremes are missing the fundamental roots of many of the problems that, that we see out there. All right. Well, then, so, 
you obviously are in a very good place when it comes to uh, physical fitness. Like the some of the the, the weight I see you throwing around is is I would say probably at least double what <laughs> what I take from the ground. Um, so as a child, tell me about your kind of sports and athletic endeavors. Oh man, yeah. Uh, my parents had me involved in sports at a very young age. I was a very hyperactive child, so they figured, hey, we give this kid some physical activity. It'll keep him out of uh, out of trouble and, uh, you know, on the right path. And I always picked up things very easily when it came to, like, athletics. Um, so, I, you know, I started with, uh, you know, like, Little League Baseball, of course. And then, um, you know, they, they noticed that, hey, this kid needs more activity. So I started playing soccer. So I was pretty good. I played for a traveling team uh, for both baseball and soccer. And then, um, you know, as I got older... For some reason, I just kind of strayed away from baseball and soccer, and I wanted to play football. So I played briefly, and then um, pretty much uh, lost my way as far as like athletics. Like, I, like it was weird. I I hated the traditional athletic like route. You know, like either you played baseball, basketball, or football, and that was that. So I picked up aggressive inline, and um, you know, started rollerblading and. Um, I think that was like a little bit of a savior for me because, you know, when you're a teenager, you know, there's a lot of idle time. You know, if you're not playing sports, like what are you doing? You're hanging out in different friend, you know, friend groups. And some kids may not be up to the, you know, the right thing, quote unquote. So um, I started rollerblading and I and I think rollerblading was what kept me out of trouble. I mean, I was still playing sports, but, you know, um, I stopped playing as, you know, as many different sports um, because it was kind of taking up a lot of my, you know, quote unquote, personal time when you're a kid, you want to hang out with your friends. Right. So I just picked one sport and I rollerbladed for the remainder of the year. Um, and that one sport was football. Uh, but rollerblading was like my passion. Um, you know, some people see it on my, on my Instagram and they're like, how does this kid do cross it? And, you know, he throws on all this way and then he's like, you know, going down ramps and grinding rails and stuff. So, um, you know, that was pretty much what I was as a kid, I was just this, this hyperactive kid that always needed something to do. I think I played every sport underneath the sun, except for, I think golf. Um, I just was always interested in, uh, in moving, in moving my body. I think that's one of like the gifts that I have that, you know, that was given to me is I, I've always been naturally athletic, you know, and, and that, and that is a blessing in itself. Now with your, your parents again, so they were, they were there to kind of help guide you and put you into these sports. So you were able to have a positive outlet as well. Oh yeah, man. Um, my mom was a swimmer and, uh, my dad, my dad was a pretty good soccer player and I ran track. So there was always, um, somebody, you know, attending my games and making sure that, uh, you know, I was practicing, you know, my dad was the first one to teach me how to, you know, play catch, you know, uh, baseball wise, you know, my dad was very intricate in, in, uh, in the growth of me in sports, um, super involved, made sure that I was, you know, doing the right thing. Brilliant. Now, what about career path? When you were high school age, were you thinking about law enforcement then, or was there something else on the table? Oh man. Um, I think my whole life I've always either wanted to be in the military or, um, law enforcement just because my, my dad, man, I used to always see my dad in some kind of uniform. So my dad was in the military and did the military reserve. So he would come home in his, um, in his BDUs. So I'd see him in his like military fatigues. And I used to think it was super awesome. I'd like watch him shine his shoes and, and, you know, press his uniform and things. So, uh, I think it was just an, a, a rite of passage for me. Cause, um, if you ever see a photo of my father and I, I'm like his carbon copy. And so, uh, I just always wanted to be like my dad. 
And, um, you know, my dad was a military guy and he was in law enforcement. So I think that was going to be the natural route for me just because that was my role model growing up. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's amazing. I've had such a diverse spectrum of stories on here. I mean, Frank obviously has got his own story, but I mean, every, yeah. you know, all walks of life, all, all colors and creeds, but you know, where, where people have thrived. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's despite their childhood, not because of their childhood, but the ones that have, have, you know, immersed well, um, you know, unscathed, definitely not had, you know, any significant mental health challenges are the ones that just had a mum and dad that were mm-hmm. there that just raised their children. So, so many of the issues that I think we see, you know, whether it's mental health, whether it's crime, whether, you know, whatever it is, over, you know, general health, like, you know, obesity, just being present and being there to, to raise your child, not just impregnate a woman is, is, you know, one of the keys I think that needs to be talked about to really push change in all those avenues. I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, I feel like, uh, most of the guys that I know that are uh, that are in this line of work that come from the same kind of environment that I come from, most of us come from a very similar household. So I know that that definitely plays a role in in the future of uh, of the kids that come from this household. Yeah, and conversely, it's crazy because there's also a huge amount of men and women that had horrific childhoods that are drawn to the uniform services because you know there's, there's an element where they obviously want to stop the cycle is the element where they want to become the protector and there's also an element of filling the void of trauma with something as engaging as law enforcement or fire oh yeah um definitely i have a um one of my uh he's no longer my partner but i was a he was my partner for about four years and he he was a product of the foster care system and you know didn't have the greatest upbringing but you know, he beat the odds and, you know, joined the military, you know, got involved in, you know, EMS and became a paramedic and then became a police officer and is a phenomenal father, you know, is a great husband. And, uh, you know, he didn't come from the best of environments. And I've learned so much from that guy. You know, I used to ride around with him every single day for about four years. And, you know, he taught me how to be, you know, more patient. Um, And, you know, I had a substantial amount of time on the job by the time I started working with him. And I always say, you, you know, you're never too old to learn. And I learned so much from him in um, in the four years that I worked with him because, you know, he was he just had a different way of working. Um, and it just it was unlike anything I've ever seen before. And, he, you know, and, you know, he didn't come from the best of upbringing. You know, he made a, a situation, uh, a sour situation turn out to be a very fruitful one. So um, I give I give a lot of guys credit that come from, you know, a a broken background or a broken home and are able to kind of, you know, change up things, you know, break the cycle, as you said. Yeah. And I think that there's one key element. If, if you address a trauma that you had as a child, you become a very resilient first responder. If you don't address the trauma you had as a child and you bring that into the job unaddressed, you become a very vulnerable first responder. Absolutely. All right. Well then, so lead me through your, your kind of entry into law enforcement. Is it NYPD that you found yourself in? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I had got hired uh, July 11th of 2005 and um, probably would have been a little bit earlier than that. But I had deferred twice um, just because I had uh, was trying to figure out what I wanted my career path to be. I was uh, I was in college just trying to figure out, you know, if I wanted to, to do law enforcement, because I feel like when you get older, you kind of I think outside influences kind of str- get you to stray away from what you wanted to be as a, as a child, you know, so. 
Um, I don't think police work was really on my mind like that. And then it just kind of came to a place where uh, PD had called me and they were like, listen, I know you deferred twice, but this is going to be the last class that's going to have a great like starting salary. So I got hired uh, in 2005 and the starting salary back then was 40000 The class after got hired at 25 so as soon as the investigator told me, like, hey, we're going down to 20, 25, one, you might want to take this. Wow. So I kind of just went through. Yeah. So uh, I uh, kind of went through the motions and it did my, my whole background investigation. Everything ended up, uh, you know, working itself out. So I got hired uh, July 11, 2005. I was on the street um, January of 2006. And then um, I spent a I spent about 20 months with NYPD or 22 months, I should say. Uh, and then I had been taking some um, some exams while I was uh, employed with the NYPD in a, a city called White Plains had called me and asked me if I wanted the job. So, um, and that was a, it's almost like a ground ball because it was a it was a bigger city. It was a it's a big city, but it has like small town vibes. So it was more pay, less work. Um, and the quality of life was just so much more better because when I was in the when I was in the city, I worked in the four six precinct, and at the time, um, that's when Operation Impact was like in full swing. So, for the people who aren't familiar with Operation Impact, that was a um, a program implemented to pretty much take high crime areas and put as much police presence there as possible to deter crime. And so that's where they had that whole big thing with the stop, question, and frisk, um, and you know, we were just out there trying to be proactive and making sure that the streets stayed safe. And at that time, New York City was probably its safest. And um, But it caught a lot of backlash later on because there was a lot of residual effects from the, the stop, question, and frisk. So um, I know I did a little bit of that. That was like my first year, and then I got moved over to um, to patrol. So patrol is like the heartbeat of police work. Uh, you learn every aspect of, of what it is to become a police officer. So you're going from domestics to, you know, felonious assaults to, to um, you know, armed robberies, you name it, it's, it's there. And um, I think that's where you learn how to become a police officer. I don't think any good police officer can be a good police officer, police officer unless they go to patrol. So, um, you know, I did that. I worked four to 12 mainly. And then, um, like I said, I transferred over to White Plains. And when I got over to White Plains, they, uh, they had a different way of working here. So they didn't have a steady, like, shift chart. So the only steadies they had here were midnights. So you worked a week of days, and then you got two days off and then you worked a week of four to twelves and you got three days off. So that took a little bit of time to get used to. So um, I did that for about uh, a year. And then I put in for a specialized unit, which was called uh, the Neighborhood Conditions Unit, NCU. And what we did in that unit was just basically dealt with quality of life crimes and, um, you know, specific crime patterns. So if there was like a burglary pattern, they would just put us in that in that area in plain clothes. And then, you know, we just try to deter that. So I did that for uh, about four years and then um, kind of got um, a little bored with it. So that's when I kind of segued over into uh, the emergency services route. Um, I always told myself when I became a police officer that I was going to be an ESU cop at some point. And my my number was like in my eighth year, I wanted to become a ESU officer. And then from eight years on to when I retired is what I was going to do. I was going to be a truck guy. Um, something that I looked up to those guys. Um, a lot of those dudes had phenomenal stories, how they got onto the truck in New York city. And so, um, 
being the fact that I left New York City at such a young age, I said, if you know, the next department that I'm at, if they have an emergency services unit, that's what I'm going to do. And um, in exactly the eighth year of my uh, police career, I became uh, an emergency service uh, police officer. And for those who don't know what emergency services cover, it's, um, you know, vehicle extrication, rope rescue, um, tactical tactical operations as well. And we, 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 uh, we act in a capacity as an EMT or medic. Um, so at any given time, you have an EMT on the road and a medic. And, um, you know, it's it, it's a very it's a very like gracious job because it's it's your opportunity to help police officers and also help your community. Because when things get really bad, they call us, you know, so if, if a patrol officer has a situation that he can't, you know, take care of himself, they'll call us in and, and you know, we, you know, we come in and, and um, help uh, help the situation out. So that's that's a very interesting thing because most people listening um, are going to recognize those roles as firefighter roles. My whole career, you know, I did yeah. extrication. I did, you know, I wouldn't say I did, did rope rescue. I did all the classes, but I never really rescued off a rope in my particular career. But that was, again, an FD, um, you know, job description. So yeah. when you're telling me that, uh, to me, an interesting kind of uh, uh, way of looking at it is you have – you know, SWAT, you have obviously the, the police officer role with the sidearm and the taser and arrests and handcuffs. But then you also, within the same badge in your particular department, you have these roles that are cutting civilians out of cars that are rescuing someone off the side of a building. How did that factor into improving relationship with the community versus purely just being the law enforcement side? Oh, man, that's a great question. Um in the emergency services realm, I think you, it's a, uh, uh, you, it's a little bit more personable because, like, if I, for instance, if I go, uh, if I go to a call and, like, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, a great scenario. I had a situation where I had a, a guy who was on it on top of a building and basically said he was going to jump. So, you know, my partner and I, well, my partner sets up a rope system while I build a rapport with this guy, and, um, and the whole time I'm building a rapport with this dude, I'm just trying to figure out what type of human being he is and, you know, what can I do to get his attention and, and, and get his trust? And so, um, you know, we're having a conversation and we started talking about like personal things, you know, his belief system and, uh, you know, what the, how he grew up and so on. And so I, I managed to connect with him by talking about the Bible. And uh, the minute I started talking about the Bible, he locked in with me and he and I started to then have a conversation and I was able to convince him to to not jump, you know, jump off this building and just have a conversation with me. And, um, you know, I had to gain his trust and he had to, you know, he had to trust me and I had to trust him because if he goes over, I have to go over as well. You know, obviously I'm, I'm in a harness and a, you know, a rope system, but you know, he had to have enough trust in me for that so that I would be able to go over there and have that conversation with him and, you know, talk him off the ledge, so to speak. So I feel like in the capacity of an emergency service officer, is um, there's, there's a personable side because you do show up when people are at their weakest and when they need help. And a lot of the times it's, it's, it's a conversation and, or, or it's us like helping somebody more or less than, you know, coming in and um, doing something that could create some sort of a trauma. Cause obviously there's aspects of my job where, you know, if I'm conducting a search warrant and so on, but um, you know, in that aspect, I think the people that are engaged in those activities know that that's a possibility. But for the most part, when the community sees us pull up, it's it's like, all right, you know, 
the truck guys are here. These guys come to help, you know, or if you cut somebody out of a car or, you know, and they remember your name because they'll see your name tag and, and they'll send a letter to to the police precinct or like a Christmas card. You know, yeah, there was a guy who had a massive heart attack in his in his living room and his wife, you know, we, we were we were able to save him. And, you know, he's still alive today. And, you know, we received a life saving award. But his wife wrote us a letter and actually came to the precinct and, you know, thanked us personally for our service. So it's things like that that are very rewarding when it comes to to that aspect of, of the of uh, the you know emergency service realm. You, you, you have a chance to really connect with people in that aspect. So I think that's a little bit different as far as like connecting with the community, because I think that a lot of the time, you know, when you see police, they're, they're, you know, they're arresting somebody or writing somebody a ticket. You know, our main function isn't that it's it's actually to come in and, and, and help. So I think when people see us, it kind of does help the rapport with the community a little bit, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that, that's just an interesting dynamic. And I can see why you want to be on that team because those rescues are also some of the most fun. And doing paramed- you know, paramedicine, too, is, is incredible. So that's a very, very interesting lens. Um, so you have an interesting kind of uh, perspective because you've had two departments now. Um, you've gone from, you know, on the street to, you know, the elite um, response team side as well. So firstly, in, in that lens, between the two departments – what was the fitness standard to get hired and how was that maintained in each of them? You know, and and, and in your opinion, what could be done better, if anything? Oh, okay. A great question again. Um, so NYPD does this thing called the JST, which is stands for the job standard test, which I feel is pretty accurate as to what you do on a daily basis as a police officer or what you could potentially be doing. Um, so the JST, uh, starts with, um, you start from a kneeling position. Usually you have a weighted vest and a weighted belt on to simulate your bulletproof vest and your uh, your your gun belt. And then you have to start from the kneeling position. You jump over a six-foot fence. And uh, the fence then becomes a wall when you get into the academy. The fence is a little bit easier than the wall because the fence has that mid-bar, which gives you a little bit more leverage in order to bound the fence. Um, once you bound the fence, you traverse these stairs. So you go up and down seven times you cannot you can skip on the way going up you cannot skip on the way going down all right and then once you're done with that there's a push pull machine that they have um i don't remember what the weight was exactly but that push pull uh, machine you have to do four cycles in the push and four cycles in the in the in the pull so it's like all it's a, it's a semicircle. so you're basically going like half of a circle push half of a circle pull once you're done with that you do a 400 meter pursuit run with which they have set up with cones um, once the pursuit run is done there, you do a dummy drag. The dummy's 180 pounds and you can't pull it by a rope. You have to pull it from underneath the arms. And when you complete that, there is a metal ring that they have and you have to take a, um, there's a firearm they have there with the fire, the firing pin removed. You have to do 16 trigger pulls. Um, and if you hit the ring, that is a automatic, automatic fail. So that's for NYPD. Um, my, the, the, the Cooper standard is used to get on my job, which is, a yeah, push-ups, sit-ups, and a run uh, according to your age and gender. And um, once you pass the Cooper standard, there is no um, annual like re-up for that. So once you pass, you pass. The only difference is if you want to be a part of a um, specialized unit, you have to pass the Cooper standard in the 70th percentile according to your age and gender. So again, it's the same test. 
but it's just the 70th percentile versus the 50th percentile. Um, so the 50th percentile is used to get in and the 70th percentile is used to um, get inside a specialized unit. So if you wanted canine, if you wanted, um, you know, special response team or SWAT or something like that, you have to pass it in the 70th percentile. So just in my eyes, I think of uh, the job standard test is more uh, relatable to job function. It's things that you do in an actual, you know, job situation. Because in, in my whole career, I don't think I've run over, I think I ran over a mile once and it was just with a canine guy and we were doing a track. And that was just like super quick. I think we ran that mile and I think it was like a mile and a quarter. Um, and then the dog ended up losing the track. But I think the JST, in my eyes, is more accurate when it comes to police work. Now, is the JST done every year in NYPD? No, there's no annual re-up on that either. So um, that that is the only difference here. I think the state police, they do an, a, a annual um, re-up when it comes to their Cooper standards. So um, most jobs, once you get on, there's no um, standard that needs to be man- maintained once you get on. Okay, so coming from not only law enforcement background, but obviously, you know, walking the walk yourself with your own strength and conditioning, what is your opinion on having no fitness standards annually? Because this applies to fire as well. We have the same issue in our our profession. Um, I think, well, you have, to, you have to think about our job function, right? Our job function is physical. You know, you can go from a complete lull to now having to run to like a four alarm fire in your instance in fire service. And, you know, us in the same right, if there's the call of, uh, you know, a robbery in progress or burglary in progress or something like that. So um, physical fitness is, is, is key to, to our function in the first responder realm. Um, and I think it gets overlooked. A lot of guys, you know, suffer from hypertension, um, you know, stress mitigation is a, is a huge thing for us. And I think that having a physical outlet can help with stress mitigation. So that helps your overall wellness. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're, if your body is right, then the mind will follow. Right. So um, I think a lot of guys get away from once they get on the job, they get away from being physically fit, but they don't understand we're working obscure hours. You know, we're probably not eating the best meals and we're not, you know, we, and we go into, very high stress environment. So you need to have something to, to keep you in, in top physical shape so that when you do retire, you can enjoy your retirement. You know, I know the average lifespan of a, of a, of a, of a first responder post retirement, I think it's like seven to eight years. And then, you know, something happens where, you know, a sickness kicks in because your body is used to functioning on high stress levels. So now you remove that, that high stress level and then you have adverse you know effects to, removing these stress levels. So I think a way to combat that is having a better quality of life, right? So working out, eating the right things, you know, and making it a, a, a annual thing, I think will A, make for a, a a better service, right, overall, because I think that, you know, better decisions are made if you are physically fit, because then if the body is right, the mind is right, like I said before. So it's like, I always tell people, that this this job, your physical fitness, your life depends on it. You know, you don't want to go into a situation and and you know you have to run up four flights of stairs or five flights of stairs, and when you get there, you're completely useless. And somebody may need your help on that on that fifth on that fifth flight, but because you exerted all your energy on the way up there, you're, you're useless to the to the guy that is requesting the help. You know, absolutely. Well, and I want to again get into you know 
hiring standards, creating the environment for, for first responders to thrive in a minute. But again, that same question with those two parallels, what about defensive tactics, hands-on you know, arrest techniques? Mm. I, I always tell guys you should be working some form of um, hand-to-hand combat of some sort. Um, I think they've gotten away from it a little bit. Most guys that, you know, most guys just go to the gym and they train, um, you know, like traditional bodybuilding, which is fine. You know, it's a a form of strength and conditioning. But there's an aspect of our job that requires us to um, use our hands. And I think people have gotten away from it. So I always tell guys, if you are in law enforcement, you should be you should be well versed in like boxing or or maybe some form of wrestling uh, or some kind of uh, martial arts krav jujitsu, something of that nature, because there's going to come a, a time where you're going to have to put hands on somebody. And I feel like if you if you educate yourself on that forefront, it makes you that much more of a um, I don't want to say a weapon, but you're less of a liability. You know what I mean? Because now you know what you're capable of. Now you know how to disarm and maybe have, you know, like so for us, we have guns on our on our gun belt, you know, being able to to have gun retention and, and you know, have body awareness. Um, then leads to less problematic issues later down the down the down the line, you know. So if you have somebody that's working the the martial arts aspect of it, you get somebody that does the grappling, does you know boxing or maybe a little bit of krav. I think you have less incidents where lethal force is now is, is then used. So I always tell guys if you if you if you're in the gym, make part of your training regimen some form of hand to hand combat or some form of martial art. Just pick it up, you know. Or maybe they need to figure out a way where they can implement it through the department. I don't know. But I mean, I myself, I have a guy that I go to and, and you know, we do pad work. I do. I hit the bag, you know, so I just make sure that I, I keep my skills sharp. Yeah. Well, to me, it's a, it's a two pronged attack, too. So you have the actual, OK, someone, you know, is resisting. You physically use your techniques, whether it's jujitsu, whether it's wrestling to de-escalate that physically so you're not drawing your firearm and you know and uh fatally wounding the suspect but then and and you know other people have said this but correct me if this isn't the case with you but to me there also seems to be an element of being in shape you know having good strength and conditioning and having the confidence of knowing the martial arts where you're a deterrent to someone resisting someone running you, because you're actually projecting confidence and and uh, to me that in itself is a de-escalation technique as well absolutely i mean uh i i've been in situations where uh where I've, I've walked into a room and just my presence alone was able to calm down the situation because they i guess they saw me and they hey this guy's squared away you know he's he's got some decent size on him and even the way i like project my voice um I think there's one thing that we, you know, we get away from um, in police work. I think uh, being able to speak to human beings in a a manner that doesn't seem condescending, I think also will help deter a lot of situations. So, like you said, it's the way you you carry yourself. Right. So, you know, if they see that you're squared away. Right. You're you're in great physical shape. um, They'll think twice about doing something. And then, you know, you have the aspect of how you speak to them. Nobody wants to be spoken down to. So if you just kind of come in and you have, uh, you know, you, you you come from a place of understanding, I think that helps too. But 1000%, if you walk in and you look like, you know, you are a physical specimen, um, someone will really think twice about doing something. So like you said, it is a two prong effect. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, illustrated by, and I'm not being judgy or anything. I'm not a police officer, but there are those videos out there where clearly the men and women in that particular uniform are very deconditioned. 
And what should have been a simple hands-on arrest ended up being fatally, you know, killing the suspect yeah. because they weren't able to, to you know, subdue them. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that does happen a lot. You see it and, you know, it's, it's, it's very unfortunate. I always tell people, man, it's like this job isn't something where you come to work and you sit at a desk, you know, for eight hours. It's, there's different challenges every single day and you need to be prepared for it. And when, you know, if you're physically able to, to respond and you're, and then you're less of a, li- a liability. I always say that, you know, if you're physically fit, you are less of a, a, um, a liability. And, you know, that goes from both sides. That's, you know, the person that you're dealing with will now look at you and be like, all right, well, I probably won't try anything because this guy's squared away. And then like from the police officer standpoint, like um, I can't tell you how many times I pulled up on scenes. And then like, once the job is done, you know, the, the, the police officer that I've helped, like, you know, listen, man, anytime you show up, I feel 20 times better, you know, and I take great pride in that. And I feel like that should be a standard that should be held within the force, you know, being physically fit, you know, and, and on, on all, on all aspects. Absolutely. And I think that's the thing that we, we all aspire to be like for in the fire service, we want to be that rig that shows up where everyone's like, okay, good. <laughs> that's, that's mm-hmm. a good sign. Yeah. That's not a bad sign. Um, all right. Well, then the same question again, but now let's talk weapons training. So I've had, you know, obviously a diverse group from people like Tim Kennedy that's never without a pistol in his hand all the way through to, you know, some the law enforcement officers that, um, you know, talk about their departments. They require a six shot static qualification once a year if they even, you know, and that's the only ammunition they can supply their officers. So where on that wow. spectrum did, did, has your experience in your departments fallen so far? Um, well, just to be a part of my unit, I have to pass uh, my firearms test every month. So, and I have to shoot uh, like in the 95th percentile. So I'll, uh, you know, that is something that, you know, I had to work on when I got on because, um, I was always a decent shot, but to be consistently decent, I had to practice a lot. So, um, you know, being part of this specialized unit, there's no room forever. So I have to make sure that I'm on, I'm on top of my firearms. And, um, you know, I kind of go on my own, too, as well, just because I always want to keep that part of my craft as sharp as possible. Because once again, I want to be less of a liability because, you know, every time you you fire around, you are accountable for every single round that comes out of your gun. So, I, you know, being aware of that, that you are, you know, responsible for every single round that comes out of that gun, because God forbid, you know, you misfire and strike an innocent human being. You know, in some cases that may happen, depending on the the, the situation. But. More often than not, it shouldn't happen. So, um, you know, there is room for error, but at least on my part, if I'm prepared, I feel a little bit more confident if I am, if I'm, if I am ever in a position to fire my gun, I know with all confidence that I'll be able to strike whatever target I need to and not have to think twice about it. Um, so my job, you know, for the patrol guy, they qualify two times a year. Um, and for, if you're in a specialized unit, such as myself, it's, it's once a month you have to qualify in the ninety in the ninety fifth percentile. Yeah, see, and I think that's what I see as well as a disparity between, and even in the military, a lot of the guests I've had on, you have the special operations community that seem very well equipped, very well trained. You know, they have nutritionists and strength and conditioning coaches and psychologists, and then you have you know a, the the masses, the rest of us, who that standard may be a lot lower. And I think there's a middle ground that maybe some fire police you know whatever departments can reach where we can 
raise the bar on our regular officers, our regular firefighters, so that we're asked to be more efficient. Because like you said, there's no difference between the you know, the 45 on your hip and the 45 on a patrol officer's hip. You know, it does the same exact damage. So for the bottom of the spectrum, the six shots a year qualifiers, that's, again, you talk about liability, that's that's setting the bar so damn low that the chance of you not being accurate, you know, under duress, 11 months since your last qualification, I would think are far more likely. Yeah, I mean... Like I said before, um, every department is different, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, the more rounds you fire, the more proficient that police officer is with the firearm. So uh, I think that's one thing they should probably start to ramp up is just having their officers qualify. And I know it's tough because some police departments, they're huge. Like when I was in NYPD, I mean, it is a 40,000 man department. So I can only imagine the logistics of trying to get every single member of your department qualified to carry a firearm you know and be proficient in it you know so um it it all goes by like department standard i i I believe i I, you know i pride my police department is that they're very they're very aware of our training and they, they they make sure that you know we have the uh a sufficient amount of training so i take great pride in my department i mean i know that that they're putting us in the best position uh for us to be you know, successful when, when, you know, in the event that something does happen. So, you know, you can't be proficient in anything if you don't get reps. So proficiency through repetition is, 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 is our philosophy here. And I feel like that should be um, the golden standard elsewhere. So I'm going to ask you a question. It's going to be pretty tricky. You're going to have to think about it for a, for a while. So I'll give you some time okay. to ruminate over it. So all these things that we've talked about, um, I'm assuming it require manpower, you know, money, funding. So if we defund all the police, we won't be able to have highly trained fit officers anymore. Oh, that's a great question. Man. Yeah. <laughs> a very sarcastic question. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. I mean, yeah, essentially because, you know, you need funding to, if you want better police officers, you need to allocate more funds. Right. So, you know, sending them to certain types of trainings require money, right? So whether that be a federal grant or some state grant, whatever have you, um, training costs money. So if you want a better trained police officer, then you're going to have to allocate funds for them to do that. And I don't know if people really understand that, you know, um, you know, making, making it a thing so that, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's stress mitigation. So there's a company that I work for, it's called uh, O2X Human Performance. Oh, you work and, for O2X? And, um, they, yes, yes. Ah, I didn't and, realize um, that. Yeah, so uh, I just did my first uh, seminar uh, in December, and I had fell in love with these guys a year prior uh, when they did a quick little workshop uh, up by me. And, you know, they, sh- they their whole thing is, you know, um, being a tactical athlete, you know, and it's like, it's like eat, sweat, thrive, right? So eating the right foods, working out, and like, some kind of stress mitigation tactic. And, um, you know, we went to Cherry Hill Fire Department and I just watched these guys come in and, you know, we do like a readiness assessment and then they break down, you know, a workout from all of the information that is gathered from there. And then, you know, you know, we go back and we conduct a, a three-day workshop where we would just work out with guys. But you, you started to see people have such a, a respect for 
you know, physical fitness because they noticed that they couldn't do certain things. And if you have whole departments doing this, then, you know, you start to see that they take more pride in how they come to work, what they're eating and what they're actually doing to keep themselves ready. And you have less issues. And so I, I, I always stress this to people. It's like if you give a, you know, if you give a police officer or a first responder the resources to become better, most of them will take advantage of it. And if you look at the police departments that have these requirements or they, or, or they go through this process, there's less issues. So a better trained police officer is is less less likely to put himself in a situation or herself in a situation where, you know, maybe lethal lethal force, lethal force is, is used. Um, they're, they're more likely to, to, to kind of go through the use of force continuum and, you know, not get to the last level where deadly physical force is used. Highly trained officers have less incidents. It's a proven fact. If you check the, if you check the, uh, the statistics, higher trained officers have less issues. So defunding the police is not something that I think people want to look into. You want to give more funds, more training, you know, more resources so that these, police officers can do their job to the best of their ability. That answers your question. No, it does. And like I said, it was a sarcastic no. question because that's what we were talking about. So, um, you know, yeah. there's there's obviously the training. And I think the training bar to, to earn the badge as a firefighter or a police officer in Department X and have that environment where you will be highly trained. You will have, you know, a, a physical training element that you're supported with. You will have defensive tactics and i agree with you 100 percent. by the way you have what your department gives you and then you also have ownership and go and continue your training outside you know on other days as well but um the other thing is you know you set the bar high you know so so that way you get these good officers you don't get some of these people that are probably behind some of these horrendous you know officer involved shootings that were wrong the george floyds and some of these other things you know brianna taylor i don't know the full story behind hers but i mean the end of the day an innocent woman was shot in her bed so something went wrong but um you know so so you elevate everyone up so i think that's exactly it and then the other thing that a lot of people forget and i try and advocate for your profession with this too is staffing so you know you you have that officer He's been held over because they're understaffed. He's worked two shifts back to back. It's 3 a.m. He pulls over the kid in the car with the tinted windows. He sees him reaching for something. He's sleep deprived, cross-eyed, and, and, you know, he thinks it's a gun and it's not. It's a driving license. He made a horrible mistake, but he was also an environment that set him up for failure. So again, by defunding, you're talking about less staff. So more overtime. So even more exhausted officers driving around so that's another thing that this whole conversation is missing like the less people we have the more the remainders are going to have to work the less efficient those men and women are going to become yeah absolutely uh i agree with that wholeheartedly um i feel like police culture is changing though i think they're kind of getting away from you know um let, allowing guys to work a ridiculous amount of doubles you know consecutively like these things are starting to change and that's you know with police work in itself things have changed um you know in society so you know you start to see things on our end change so you know with the body cams and um there's more trainings now to help you deal with like de-escalation or, diff or uh, diffusion of situations and so um i do see police culture changing i do see things war uh, you know working out uh for the best but like you said, you know, it, it, it comes down to having the, the resources 
and allocating the resources to the department so that you can have a more proficient police officer. Absolutely. Well, that's that's the one side. That's the ownership of the individual, the ownership of the agency. But now I want to explore the other side. But this this is something. This this is what I'm about to say is my opinion. It's something that I've you know talked about a lot. It's something that I personally feel would be a game changer in you know safety in communities in this country and other countries too. But um, the prohibition of drugs. So I had um, a gentleman from Portugal that was on who had, they basically decriminalized addiction um, in the in the year 2000 2001 and had incredible success. So instead of addicts being criminals, addicts became medical patients. Instead of being sent to jail, mm-hmm. they were sent to addiction centers and psychological counseling and job creation. And it was a huge, huge success in, in Portugal. I think Switzerland has had exactly the same kind of result. And even some places in, uh, I think it was Central or South America as well. Um, so when you, when you learn about how drug prohibition came about, alcohol prohibition being a complete disaster, you know, there was a lot of racial elements towards the whole reefer madness and, and, you know, how drug prohibition came in. And we're now almost a hundred years deep. Our prison populations have just swelled like 600% the last 50 years. You know, what I see is, yes, you know, better trained cops and all that stuff is part of the story. But why, you know, how are we creating these situations where the streets are so dangerous, you know, and we have so many people, you know, addicted to whatever substance it is. And by, by making those substances illegal, we're now sending all those men and women into the shadows. We're empowering other men and women to become criminals. And we're making it so much more dangerous for the law enforcement community. So with you being in, you know, 16 years on the streets now, what is your view on drug prohibition? And, you know, or, or, you know, if you're willing to talk about it, what is your view on the removal of drug prohibition? Mm, um, well, they, it's kind of tough to say, man, just because I, I've seen it hurt um, on both ends. You know, you have these uh, police officers who have, uh, you know, have hurt themselves on the job. Right. And then, you know, they end up getting addicted to to, um, you know, pain meds. And then when the pain meds run out, they end up going to, you know, heroin and so on. So um, I always I've always been an advocate for getting that person help. And a lot of the time. You know, it's it's kind of up to the to the person himself or herself to get the help. Um, as I know in Europe, they they you know they were instead of locking these guys up, they were they were putting them in um, these treatment centers. And um, I think if we allocated more resources to to do that here. I don't know if it would if it would help all, like you know on the grand scheme of things because at the end of the day, it's up to that human being to to um, you know want to change. You know, um, it's, it's, it's very tough to say, man, cause I've, I've lost some friends to, uh, to drug addiction and I just wish that, you know, there were more resources for the person that could, um, you know, help them deal with this, with, with their addiction, you know, um, you know, it's a very sensitive subject for me cause I lost like four good friends to drug addiction. And I, and I know if they had the means to, to change, they would have. But I think they were they were guys around them that were telling them, hey, man, I, I think, you know, you might need some help. And a lot of the time, you know, it's up to the person to to change that, you know, so like the you know, we do have the Good Samaritan Act here. So if you 
um, you know, uh, if you call because you are or like, let's say your friend calls because he believes that you are you, you've OD'd and, you know, we come in and, you, and we Narcan you, whatever drugs are found um, are not used as arrest evidence. It's vouchered. And then that's that, you know, so um, that, you know, that has changed a lot because back in the day, if you did do that, then, you know, you'd end up going to jail for the drugs that you possessed. So I feel like we're, you know, we're headed in the right direction. But I think ultimately it comes down to the individuals. Do you really want to change, you know, what you're doing, you know, prolong your life? You know, it's 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 a double edged sword. Yeah, no. And I think that's exactly it. And it is. uh, That's the problem is that people want to have a conversation about what's the singular thing that's going to fix this. And just like you said, there is no singular thing. But, Mm -hmm. you know, like we talked about earlier with obesity. You know, as we've seen with this last year, and I want to kind of get your perspective being up there on on the COVID thing, but, you know, talk about an environment. We've had a year that we could have made nations all over the globe so much healthier. But what happened here? We shut down all the things that made people healthy and all the things that made people unhealthy. And I'll give you an example of my, my town here. Even though we were lucky, Florida's been quite, you know, fortunate with cases and, and quite progressive with their politicians. But... You know, our healthy restaurants all shut down because they were, you know, mom and pop owned. You had to sit inside and Chick-fil-A has had a freaking line around the building nonstop for 365 days. So that's an environment to make our people even more sick. So there's an individual choice to not go to Chick-fil-A. But if the only thing that's open is Chick-fil-A, you know, then that's going to lean some of these people towards that option. And that's how I feel decriminalization is. When you take away the punitive element and you destigmatize addiction, I think a lot of more people, including people in police and fire, will feel like they can reach out for help. But as long as what they're taking is illegal, I truly feel that's a giant barrier to a lot of these people being empowered to seek help themselves. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a, a, a great statement. Um, I think a lot of people fear like the the the, uh, the backlash of it, you know. Um, like I said, I, I had, a, had a good friend who uh, was involved in police service and hurt, his, you know, hurt himself and was like, rushing himself back to work and he ended up getting addicted to pain to pain meds and um i think he was more in fear of of like not being a a police officer anymore so i think that was part of the reason why he was rushed back to work and you know in his mind he wanted to get back because he didn't want to lose his position and um you know i he knew he was struggling with something but i think like you said it was the stigma of being an addict like how how would he be looked at you know and he was never able to get the help that he needed to get and you know he subsequently ended up losing his life to addiction and, um, you know, broke my heart, you know, because I know that if he was given the resources, I think he probably would have, would have went that route. But like you said, that stigma that is attached to that, you know, being an addict, I think he didn't want to be looked at in that light, man. So, um, you know, it's great that you kind of brought that up because I, I think, um, you know, people need to realize that if you need help, go get it, seek help, you know, and, um, you know, the resources are there, but we need to not make it a, a stigma that, hey, this person's an addict. And I think we all have people in our family that have, have went through things. So, you know, it's not our place to judge. It's only our place to help and, you know, make sure that they are doing all that they can to shake that. Yeah. Well, I think that's, you know, I think we talked about this with um, you, know, you and Frank on your podcast, but I think the other problem is that there's addiction in many forms and addiction is basically mm-hmm. a mental health element. But you and I can go, you know, work a shift and then get shit faced at the bar next door and no one will even raise an eyebrow. 
But if I go and, you know, take, uh, you know, mushrooms after our shift, then I'm a scumbag addict, you know, <laughs> lawbreaker, yeah, you yep. know. And, and it's crazy because I've had Navy SEALs on this show that had to go to a different country to get Ibogaine or psilocybin to treat their PTSD because our, our you know, laws don't allow them to have herbal medicine that actually will cure them for the service that they gave to this country. So there's so many elements to it that I think, you know, I've lost three firefighters that I know to, to heroin exactly the same yeah. route whether it was injury or just mental health in general but yeah we have to view this as addiction and put it into the hands of the medical community like so these fentanyl overdoses if a me you know if you're in a safe injection site and you take fentanyl the doctor gave you that dose you're not going to od if you're in some back alley somewhere and some shitbag gave you fentanyl you're probably going to end up dead and so is the police officer that processes you because he touches the fentanyl with his bare hands and now he's dead too yep yeah, man. I mean, it's tough, dude. Um, like you said, like you know, you, you you've lost uh, three firefighters. I've lost four four police officers to it. You know, and it's something that it it hits it, it, it hits home for me. And this is why, you know, I you know I do this stuff with reps because I don't ever want to see guys go through what I went through. You know, um, there's a lot of heartache that goes into it, and you know, we we've conditioned ourselves not to have our hearts on our sleeves, but you know, it catches up with you when you know, you're home and you start to think about certain situations you have with friends that are no longer on this earth. You know, um, it's uh, it's something that I I try my best to try to help guys, you know, and make sure they have the resources. And, you know, if they need to they, they need to talk to somebody and, you know, they need, a, you know, an anonymous person to to to, you know, nominate them to go to a program. You know, I always tell guys don't don't hesitate to call me. Because, uh, you know, I want to be the person that helps. Yeah, no, exactly. And then the other side of that coin is, you know, when you cut the head off the snake, you know, supply and demand. So when you put that back in the hands of the medical community, you then address the, you know, the sales of illicit drugs. And, you know, as mm -hmm. I've always worked in, apart from my last department, I've always worked in, you know, the, the worst neighborhoods, for lack of a better description. And the number of 16-year-olds I pulled a yellow sheet over or, you know, drive by... I mean, straight out of a freaking gangster film, you know, uh, scenes that we process. Every single one of these young men and women died because of the drug war. So yeah. if that wasn't a route, if you couldn't physically make money from drugs anymore because they were legal, you'd have to actually go down a path that's going to send you, you know, maybe to crime, maybe you're breaking and entering or something. But the majority of those people would probably be funneled into the jobs that were created by legalized, you know. So now you wouldn't have that option to be a gangster because it just wouldn't exist anymore. You got nothing to sell. Yeah, I mean that'd be like the ideal situation, right? That we, uh, you know, we we start that. But it, I think there's a there's a lot of stuff on the back end there. You know, like, you know, so that money that's now taken away from these cartels, you know, they need to recoup that because they created a lifestyle off of that, right? So I think like on on the on the crime side, something would spike somewhere. That would just it would just be too. Like it's like too easy of a fix, right? If you really think about it, you sit there and you're like, all right, well, if we do this, then you know that'll that'll help with that type of situation. But, but at the end of the day, um, that money is going to have to get recouped in some shape, form, or fashion from the illegal side. So I think that's what I. And also, you know, you, you, there's other things that go into it as far as like government things, you know, it's, you know, laws and money is made on these things, right? And 
money makes money makes the world go around. So it's a it's a bigger it's a bigger issue than us just you know decriminalizing th- things like that because at the end of the day the government has to get involved in it and the government does make money off of the, off of a lot of this because of the because of the laws that are put in place. So I think it starts from the top and then it has to trickle its way down. Yeah. But I think from the bottom, if, if enough of us, you know, shake the tree, we can force the top to to make changes. Because, I mean, you know, the the uh, like I said, the the cartels have the power because of this trade, you know. So and then and then the beautiful thing about this, and I know I'm simplifying it because I'm a fireman talking to a cop. Well, I'm not a you know a legislator or anything, but I think sometimes it's where the the common sense lies. But now you can use those resources that are being freed up to track down the pedophiles, the sex traffickers, the other, you know, routes that some of these cartels might take. Um, you have those resources because all those men and women that were, you know, arresting addicts before are now freed up. The, you know, the court system is freed up. The prisons are freed up. So now you have a lot of money to, to hire better police officers, to, to train them better, to equip them better, you know. So it may seem simplified, but I think it's the red tape and politics that stops common sense from getting from A to B. I, I mean, I agree with you. That, that I, I definitely agree with. It's, but it's just, like I said, man, it's these laws that they put in place. Sometimes I wonder. You know, it's like, are we helping our community or hurting it? You know, and it's, and it's all from legislation. So it's, it starts on the, you know, I always tell people, like, if you're not voting locally, uh, you're kind of hurting yourself. You know what I mean? Because some laws differ from state to state, you know, so the local legislation and then uh, you build up and then we go to the, you know, the grand scheme. Right. But it it, it starts with us kind of being involved and 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 having a say in how we police our communities. And when I say police our communities, it's like that starts with the voting. You know, it's not just us out here. Because all we do is, as police officers, all I do is just enforce the laws. These things are voted in, you know what I mean? So I'm not the one that's, that. I'm just out here enforcing it. I didn't I didn't implement these laws. I'm just, a, you know, a, a, a piece of the system. So, you know, it, it starts on that forefront. I feel like people need to educate themselves more and I think if enough of us go out and vote, that's why I'm a big stickler on voting. Go out to your local elections, your local legislature, and start to get the ball rolling there. So now we can change that narrative, you know, because if we continue to just, you know, not go out and vote and not educate ourselves, uh, we're only hurting ourselves. Yeah, well, speaking of legislation, like, as you mentioned earlier, 13th, um, I've I've discussed this before, even put it in the book that I wrote. So in 1970, we had, oh uh, God, I'm, I'm blanking out. I think it was 350, yeah, 350,000 prisoners in the US. As of now, we have 2.2 million prisoners in the US. So again, simplifying it through a firefighter's eyes, through a British dude's eyes, that doesn't seem like it's working very well. I had one guy say, oh, but it's because of uh, population increase. It's like, no, dude, we haven't increased 600% in 50 years. Um, there'd be no you know, surface area left in America. Um, but so again, that's, it seems to me like there are elements that we're not doing well. I had a, a prison governor from Norway on the show. He's uh, the governor of uh, Bastoy Prison who's you know one of the most successful and humane prison systems. I had another guy from Oregon State who's applying a lot of those Norwegian models to theirs now. So with a father in corrections and with you um, being on the streets yourself and being a fan of 13th, um, what is your view on our 
prison system and how could we do that better to maybe lower some of the recidivism rates? Oh man, great question. Um, giving, giving these guys more resources. And I think it's starting to change a little bit. Um, you know, there was a point in time where like a, a felon couldn't get a job. You know what I mean? And I think now there's programs that are put in place where guys who have served a substantial amount of, of uh, prison time can now go out and, and, um, you know, get jobs and, and be, you know, reassimilated into society. Cause I think what happens is when these guys were going to jail is they, you know, they were being alienated, you know, going to jail just because you were a horrible, you know, you made a, you made a horrible decision in your, in your teens, right. And you were locked up for a decade. doesn't mean that you didn't learn from being incarcerated that, you know, I need to I need to become a productive member of society. There's a lot of guys that I know that have went to prison and have not returned. Um, but because they but these guys were involved in programs where they were allowed to get get jobs and, you know, where they can make a substantial amount of money so they can provide, you know, for themselves and their family. Um, I think us being able to put put ex prisoners in a position to win, you know, by helping them get into these programs where they can now, you know, um, readjust and, and now start with a clean slate, you know, not have their record be indicative of their future. I think, I think it starts there. You know, um, I, I know a bunch of, um, you know, social workers that they, they go to the prisons and they do that. They get these, they get these young men and women um, ready to get adjusted to society because you have to think about it, right? If I went to jail in 1990 and I come out in the year 2000, you know, so much can change in a decade. So how do I now catch up to speed, uh, you know, because I've been missing from society for 20, you know, for a decade, you know, it's very hard for you, for someone to now get caught up to speed because you've been out of the game for so long. And then there's people who have done more time. And then you also have to think about the, the, the developmental stages that these people were locked up in. You know, you get, a, you, you get a young man who was locked up at 16 and now he comes home at, you know, uh, 30, you know, a lot of his developmental years were spent incarcerated. How does that person now become a productive member of society? It's very tough because, you know, those are the years where, where you know, cognitive function and all these things are starting are, are like developed. You know, I know my teenage years, I, it, 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 that was a very key for my growth as a as a man. So um, just making sure that they have these programs that put these guys and girls in position to get adjusted back to society yeah absolutely. i hope i answered that right <laughs> no no you did i think that's that's what the the norwegian model really was and again i'm not you know demonizing our system is just at, at what point do we go okay enough is enough you know whether it's drugs whether it's prisons but you know whatever it is and it's not the men and women that are enforcing those like you said enforcing you know the the jail time enforcing laws on the streets we are the messengers. You know, I follow protocols medically that I'm told to do. Um, but with the, the way they do it there is, you know, these prisoners have lost their freedom. Okay. And some of these men and women are, you know, violent offenders. Um, and so they live in a house and they have to cook. They have to clean. They go to work. They take educational classes because their whole philosophy is one day these men and women are going to leave prison and they're going to move next door to you and your family. So who do you want moving back after that process? Do you want someone who's become a harder version of the criminal they were when they entered? Or do you want someone who's, you know, truly become a, a great human? And, and think about, again, the mental health stuff. A lot of these people drawn to crime, you know, probably 
have some mental health issues too. So with that's addressed and they're able to overcome that and educate themselves and have a set of skills, the chances of them reoffending, and, and this is statistical, you know, I think the the recidivism rate in Norway is like twenty percent. Ours is in the uh, the seventies in the first five years. So yeah, there's other countries and you know around the world that are doing things better that I think could make it safer for our citizens and safer for our law enforcement as well. Absolutely, I agree with you wholeheartedly, man. Um, I think you and I have very similar uh, outlooks on things. Um, so that's kind of refreshing that someone has the same ideology that I have. Beautiful. Well, I think it's just humanity, isn't it? At the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> Not yeah, being true, a dick. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, going back to law enforcement for a second before we transition and start talking about reps. Um, one more element that, you know, we hear this phrase a lot and I've had some great examples of this being put into place with Pat Russo from MP, M, excuse me, NYPD boxing. Um, and then, uh, Craig Hunami, who's the, the quote unquote skateboarding cop and the, the Northwest. Yeah. So, so tell me about that. What, what have you seen? Um, you know, what would you like to see in, in policing as far as almost going back again to, to the old school police officer? Obviously not the, you know, Southern you know, racist times where, you know, even my, my profession were there hosing people with fire hoses, but the, the old school traditional, you know, community police officer that was amongst their community and, and therefore, one of the community rather than quote unquote the enemy um yeah i community policing i think um being able to like so for instance i can't tell you how many times someone has reached out to me via instagram um and you know they were a person of color and basically kind of from the same community that i come from and they said that they admired you know what i do and how i went about doing it you know um seeing people who look like you from the same environment as you in these positions um that is a great sense of inspiration for a lot of these kids that grow up in these communities because, you know, I, I know for me growing up, I, you know, there wasn't a lot of uh, positive influence growing up in the, you know, in the neighborhood. You know, there were a lot of kids that decided to, you know, take, you know, go the opposite route, you know, and, and you know, take the criminal route. And, you know, I don't judge anybody for, for what for what they do. But, you know, because I don't know what circumstances they went home to. But I know there was a few guys that were able to you know, break this, break the, the stigma. And then they ended up getting, you know, government jobs and, you know, uh, they were role models for some of these young kids who didn't have the male figures in their life to, to look up to. So I just think like placing guys in, in, in communities that, that, that look familiar to them, you know, because sometimes if you put like, there's, there was a lot of guys that I worked with that just ne- they didn't grow up in an urban community. So I don't think they really understood, you know, some of the, uh, the mannerisms, so I believe if you take guys that grew up in these in these communities and you and instead of going out there and just, you know, um, patrolling your sector, getting out, getting involved, knowing who's who, knowing that Miss Jones lives in, you know, apartment 3B and, you know, Mrs. Baker is in, you know, apartment 4 George and then having interactions with the community on a positive level, getting out there and and, you know, kind of shooting the shit with these kids and, and just getting to know, getting to know them on a personal level. Uh, you know, it, it's not ideal in some instances, but it, I know a lot of departments are, are are equipped enough where they can do that. Because I remember getting on the job and, you know, there's a guy who worked, you know, Sector Adam. He knew everyone in Sector Adam and, Hector, and Sector Adam knew who he was. You know what I mean? So it was like getting back to, to, to the grassroots of community policing and just putting people who look like the people in these communities 
I think that's the start. Uh, that's a good way. That's a good building point. You know, I, I've always been an advocate for that. Like I'm the type of guy that, that uh, will go out there and have quick conversations, you know, and, and, and just get to know people. So that way, God forbid, I do have to respond to something. If someone sees my face, they're like, Hey, you know, it's officer Kyle. He's cool. You know, I'll speak to him and, you know, and I can diffuse the situation. Yeah. Well, and I think culturally, that's a very good point too. And I've had that both sides in, in my career. Very, very early on, I was in uh, Hialeah, Florida, which at the time was about, I think, 96% Cuban. And you know, men, most, Cuban, yeah. most of whom, like, you know, first generation off the boat Cuban. So Spanish was the primary language there. So there's, you know, English farm boy, blue eyed, you know, blonde haired. I, and I didn't speak Spanish very well at all. Like, you know, I tried to learn it while I was there, but I mean, we're talking like white belt level. You know, that, <laughs> that was a barrier to communication. That was a barrier to building a relationship to a rapport with that patient or, you know, whatever the core was. But then conversely, you know, later in my career, especially, you know, if we had, um, because I'm in the Orlando area, if we had a British tourist or something that had a thick accent, they'd, they'd, bring me over, you know, because that's my people. So I could understand what they were saying. I could relate and I could say things that would calm them down. So there's there's not even any mystery to it, you know. It's just, like you said, if, if you can find commonalities. And a lot of us develop the skill to be able to, to communicate with a lot of people. But I mean, how many of us have we been on a call where we know as a man, we're just not the right officer to respond to that particular incident. So a female officer would be best, you know, whether it's a sexual assault case or whatever it is. So... By understanding, like you said, where to put your people, where they would, you know, truly be a force multiplier, is definitely a good part of the conversation. And situational awareness. I always say that, you know, you know, putting the right people in the right places, I think, helps. Absolutely. All right. Well, then, one more area before we transition: um, COVID. With you guys being up in the Northeast, you know, what has your been your experience for this last year? Oh man, um, probably the most challenging part of my career was. Uh, just being a part of this whole, uh, you know, COVID situation. They adjusted our tours. Um, we were around a ridiculous amount of death. And, and um, I know a lot of guys were just ment- more mentally beat up than anything else. Um, and, you know, we were in one of the places that was hit extremely hard. So just making adjustments on the fly uh, was was super hard. And I think it took a toll more on, the, on like the mental health of the guys that were working. You know, um, it's very tough to go into situations where you see, you know, family members grieving over a body, you know, and like because, you know, we we deal with death. But to deal with death on that uh, and that rate was 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 just very tough. And then you normally will get there and then the Emmy comes and it's a very quick process. But during COVID, the Emmys were backed up. So, you know, bodies were sitting in living rooms or sitting in bedrooms for for hours, uh, some instances, days, um, you know, it was tough, dude. Uh, one of the toughest parts of my career, um, you know, I, you know, thank God I have a, you know, uh, resounding faith in God. And, uh, you know, I was able to lean on that, but I, I know a lot of dudes were going home just mentally fatigued, um, spiritually fatigued and, you know, physically fatigued because, you know, th- these were long days, you know, we, I work a traditional 10 hour shift, um, and then they switched us to 12 and we were, we were on a steady three on three off. Um, so it got a little tedious after a while, man, when, when we were at our peak, you know, going to six or seven COVID calls and, you know, and all those fatalities, it was, it was, it was pretty tough. Yeah. I know that's something I've heard from, you know, other people I've spoken to as well is that in some cases it wasn't even, there were more people dying in that particular area. But like you said, the, the logistics of, 
you know, the the isolation and everything, people that would normally be in the ER before they passed, people that normally be in a nursing home, whatever it was, were were told to stay at home. So like you said, you had a completely different dynamic where humans were dying in their houses versus, you know, ambulance and then ER or whatever the transition they took. Yeah, yeah. I think that was I think that was one of the hardest parts, just seeing it, you know, like in most cases you transported a you know, a, a person and then, you know, days later they might have passed away. But, you know, um it took a it took a toll on us, man. Um I know I know my job did a did a great job of making sure that they they uh put out the resources for, for guys to speak to people or if they, you know, if it was um, a gruesome call that they went to, they, they made sure that, you know, someone reached out to me and uh, put you in line with somebody to speak to. Right. Well, then, um, just, just as a side note, with the communities having to self-isolate with, you know, the, 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 the mental impact of, the actual deaths themselves with, again, sleep deprivation because of the shifts being stepped up, especially when there's an exposure, an entire crew has to go home and stay home for a couple of weeks. Um, how much do you think that has played into just the overall tension? We've seen tension on you know, race and, and anti-police. We've seen tension on Democrats and, and Republicans. What has been your lens of just this this year and the impact of COVID on a lot of that tension that we've seen too? Uh I mean, we, we've kind of been made the villains in it, you know, um, a lot of these places have like mass mandates and like uh, social distancing issues. So who do you think they call to, to enforce that? You know, you, you, you call the police to do that. So not only people are, you know, they're they're financially frustrated, you know, they're mentally frustrated. And now, you know, you have a police officer telling you that you can't have, you know, 12 of your family members in your house because of social distancing issues, you know, because their neighbor called and said, hey, they got 10 cars in the driveway. You know, it's tough, man. Uh, we, you know, we, we've been villainized and uh, all we're doing is just trying to keep order. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's tough. Like I was saying earlier, man, it's I feel bad for the young guys getting on the job now because this, you know. I know they took it for all the right reasons, but now you get out here and it's it's very tough that, you know, a young, impressionable mind is now being told that they're like the villain it's 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 weird. I remember being a 22 year old kid getting on the job and just being, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed, you know, re- ready to get after it. And now it's just like I put myself in the shoes of, of these young guys getting on now. And, it, you know, it, it's tough. I don't know how these how these young guys do it, you know, um, to, to take a job where you felt like you were going to be it was honorable. And, and you, you felt like you were going to be a hero to, to now be villainized. Uh, you know, I know it's tough. So, you know. Yeah, I try well, to talk to these young guys as often as possible. Well, we just got. Mind is. I'm sorry, mate. We we got such a cancer as well of you know an individual makes a mistake and a whole profession gets blamed for it. And we have this, you know, mm-hmm. in the fire service too. Like we'll have a tool taken away or a policy change because one asshole, <laughs> you know, yeah, ma- made a mistake and we all pay for it, which is a horrible, you know, it's a horrible leadership too. But I mean, I recently the, the 2020 was bad for me because. Um, either side of the new year, two different agencies for two different reasons. My son ended up in a psych facility at 12 years old. And it was hands down school and law enforcement complete shit show. You know, so I've got reason to be anti-police, but I'm not. Like those two agencies have a serious problem when it comes to mental health in the local schools here. And that is something I'm going to change. You know, it's not if, it's when. But in, but I don't blame the officers specifically. One of them's a, 
fucking idiot, so we'll leave her out of it. But the other one, you know, he was just doing what he told, he even consulted his supervisor, and the supervisor actually made a, a horrible decision. But all that, regardless, that was that one event, that agency, that policy. But it doesn't mean that, you know, now I hate all cops because they made a mistake. And it was a really awful mistake that's, you know, traumatized my child. So, you know, it pissed me off no end. But, you know, again, we, we can't have this tar, you know, with the same brush kind of mentality. And that's really what's happened, you know, this year is that there's been a fire under these extremes, you know, like if you don't like X, then you must hate all Y people, you know, and it's like, you know, this polarizing thing. So I'm hoping that, and I'm not expecting a change of guard in the White House to be a magic unicorn that's going to change everything. It's us, the people. But I'm hoping yep. we can get away from that narrative that because a police officer, you know, uh, you know, whoever made a mistake and, you know, rightly so people are upset because a life was lost, that that's not the narrative for all Democrats, all police officers, all black people. You know, we can get away from that ridiculous reporting that sadly is exactly what the news stations are relying on to sell advertising space. I think we just need to get back to being more human. That's it, man. Absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, it's tough. Yeah. Tough times. All right. Well, I'll get off my soapbox now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, one more thing before we, we transition, because I, I, I'd be you know remiss not to talk about this. Tell me about your journey into CrossFit. Oh, uh, yeah. I had a I had a had a cousin of mine who um, basically was like, "Hey, man, you ever heard of this thing called CrossFit?" And this is back in like twenty um, eleven, and I was like, "No, nah, I never heard of it." He uh, googled the gym that was by me, CrossFit Westchester. I walked in there, um, instantaneously fell in love with it. Um, and then realized that it was translating over to like my job function. So I was like, oh, wow, I could get in shape and, and become a better police officer. Well, you know, why not? So, and I, and then it also had, you know, like a, aesthetic reasons too, right? You know, I was looking better in my clothes or, you know, and, and, you know, going to the beach and, and, you know, feeling proud about, you know, all the hard work that I put in. So I kind of just dove all in. I got certified in like 2013. I got my cross to level one. You know, started coaching. I really dove in, and um, you know, I haven't really looked back since. It, it, it's 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 great because it, it helps me work all my weaknesses. Uh, because you don't, you can't really suck at anything. You, you you know, you don't have to be super good at it, but you just you can't suck. So, uh, well, it it just made me work on the things that I hated on you know, working on. And you know, um, I'm just fortunate enough that you know I, I'm I'm able to work in the gym. I can I can still touch uh you know touch people in a way where I can help them you know, work on their physical fitness, which then helps their mental wellness. So um, that's just something that I enjoy doing. Now, what about the community element? Because that I, I started CrossFit in 06, but for a lot of that, it was initially with, in my fire station, so there was a community. But then I, when I left that department and I moved to, to where I am now, for many years, I was doing it from the main site on my own because there just weren't any uh -huh. gyms around. When I found a gym and realized how powerful that community was, you know, that was like the other 70% of what that particular philosophy is about. With you seeing, you know, your own gym in that space, you know, what do you see as far as the power of just a, a, the tribe, the community in lifting people up in that community? Oh, it's, 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 uh, it's great, man. Uh, just being able, I always say group fitness. Um, in this aspect, it helps a lot because you have people from all walks of life and you get to you get to learn a lot about different people um, because every day you're partaking in in fellowship. Right. So we're sweating. You know, we're 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 both struggling through this workout. All of us are struggling through this workout. 
And, you know, we're, we're all working to the same goal, and that's just becoming a better human being. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of people need to start to look into things like that. We're being around other because we, we as a society have, have uh, dehumanized ourselves, you know, um, and especially with COVID and, and, and so on. You know, um, human contact is, is key. We are social creatures. Right. So being around other human beings, especially other like minded human beings, kind of it, it, it puts you in a better place of understanding. Um, and that's why I love group fitness. That's why I love CrossFit, because, um, you know, a lot of some of the some of my best friends that I have now, I met through CrossFit. And, um, you know, I, I always tell guys, you know, I can tell a lot about a person by just working out with them. And um, I, I think it's a great bonding method, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting as well. I had uh, Sebastian Junger on the, the the author, and he boxes in New York, and he said the same mm-hmm. kind of thing. He's like, when you get in there, that's not you know, the black guy from Wall Street or you know the Jewish guy that's a uh, you know from some poor area. It's oh, that's the guy with the good jab. That's the guy with the good right cross. You know, because yep. that's that you have that commonality. So all that superfluous labeling goes out the window and you all have that communal central thing. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, it is it is uh, this this space is uh, is great because, like I said, walks all you know, people from all walks of life get to sit in one room and, and they have the, you know, that one thing in common, which is this, this, you know, working out will bring a lot of people together. So, I you know, I encourage people to do some form of something like this you don't have to do crossfit but you know figure out a way to 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 be around people from all walks of life and learn different you know nuances when it comes to different human beings yeah now what about um just quickly what about mentorship programs a friend of mine does a great one here in in ocala where i live and it's free to all kids all walks of life you know they provide the equipment everything they just literally physically have to show up to that place at that time and they they gear them that they they groom them to become a firefighter and, and many of them then there are scholarships they can vie for to go through fire school and it really has penetrated some of these communities that maybe were kind of left behind and bringing all these young men and women into this profession have you got anything like that in white plains where you're doing the same with law enforcement um they have like an explorers program here um it's not as involved as some of these other places um i know that I know they definitely just started up a new uh, community outreach program and they've been doing stuff within the community with like young kids and just, um, you know, giving them some insight. Um, we're starting to, we're starting to get back to that. Uh, like I said, po- policing is, is now changing. So we're getting back to more of these community based things. Um, I don't know exactly what these guys are doing as far as mentorship wise. Um, Cause that's, that's like tough because you know, um, the higher ups create that, you know, and I know that they, um, they definitely just started up a new unit in, in, in my department and that they're involved in the community greatly. So, um, I think a lot of police departments are now starting to go back to that just because, you know, the, the, uh, the relationship between the community and the police are, are is, is fractured due to these, you know, these last, uh, you know, year and, 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 you know, some of these events that have happened. So, um, I know we have a we we just created a new unit where they do do a um a outreach program. I just don't know exactly what these guys are doing as far as that. Yeah. Well, I think that's the, what I see so is so powerful about that. So there's you and I both that had great childhoods were raised by parents that were present. And so, you know, that's that's step A that, you know, each parent is responsible for raising their child. The reality is 
in households of all walks of life, there are children that are raising themselves. There are children that are being taught all the wrong things. But in so many mm-hmm. people I've had on the show that grew up in that kind of background, it was a mentor figure. It was a, a teacher, you know, a coach, some someone, a neighbor who just actually gave a damn about that person. So if we if we don't have those places, then we negate any of these kids that are maybe on on the wrong path of finding the true path. So I think the the power of mentorship and getting to these young, like early teens and you know, mid teens. That's where you can really drive changes, even if the home life isn't ideal. Yeah. Um, I know when I was growing up, we had the PAL, and uh, that was huge. You know, you'd go in there and it'd be uh, cops working with um, with kids, be it like weightlifting or boxing. And, you know, it, uh, it, it gave them a, uh, a, a, um, an outlet and it helped them, I, I guess, build a rapport with the kids in the community, man. I know that PAL was huge when I was a kid. That's why I first started lifting weights, you know, and I was around guys that were, you know, police officers that looked like me. I remember a guy named uh, Charlie Walker, and uh, he was one of the guys that I looked up to. I used to see him in the PA all the time, and he's like, what? Part of the reason why I wanted to become a police officer, you know, outside of, like, my dad and things, you know, he was another guy from the community that looked like me, and he was, cool. you know, he was, like, a cool, smooth guy. And, uh, you know, he ended up, he's uh, he's now a lieutenant in the, the police department in the city that I grew up in, and... Uh, you know, I think he's like the third black lieutenant in the in the history of the city. So, you know, he's breaking color barriers and, and you know, being a trailblazer. He was one of the guys I looked up to and I met him at the PAL, you know, so. There we go. And now you're a police officer yourself. Yeah. So, you know, little did he know he inspired me. Yeah, I think that's just it. I think they need, you know, we need to be present to to be able to be in that position to help raise people up. All right. Well, speaking Absolutely. of raising people up, it's a great segue. Um, so tell me about how you got involved with uh, Reps to Responders and then we'll transition to the podcast. Yeah. Um, so uh, Frank, Frank, uh, Frank from Reps to Responders reached out to me. We had a friend in common and, uh, you know, I guess his the, the friend that we had in common was like, hey, I know a guy who was pretty much has the same mission statement as you, man. I think you need to link up with this dude because he's very positive and, um, you know, he's looking to do the same thing he's looking to help people and um i think you guys would get along so frankie reached out to me and um you know we were throwing around some ideas and you know he pretty much told me about what reps for response reps for responders was about and he told me about his journey and i was just you know um in awe of, of of his transformation and the things that he was doing to become a better man and a better human being and um you know we, you know we decided that hey you know let's let's get a podcast man and uh you know um start to invite people on and try to get their journey and, you know, what it is that they, uh, they did to, to become the person that they are. And that's pretty much what, you know, inside the labyrinth podcast is about. It's just, you know, getting people from all walks of life and, you know, the labyrinth is your mind and, um, you know, getting through some of the tough parts where you were, you know, a little bit of self doubt started to creep in and then, you know, um, just working through those things and then when self-actualization hit, where were you exactly and things of that nature. So, you know, reps is a great resource for, um, you know, first responders or just human beings, man, like family members of those who have served in the military and so on. Anybody on the, you know, on the first responder forefront, you know, it's not an easy job. Um, we live in some really difficult times and, um, you know, we, we provide resources to help the family members of first responders um, and first responders themselves, you know, and just making sure that they're doing the right thing to be the best human being that they can be. 
Beautiful. I saw you just had James Fitzgerald from the Unabomber case. Oh, man, that was probably one of the greatest days of my life, dude. Uh, uh, I've uh, I've looked up to that dude for a very, very long time. And Frankie was able to, um, you know, get that situated. And uh, it was it was such a pleasure to to interview such a brilliant, brilliant mind. Um, I just, you know, I enjoyed every second of it. Brilliant. I might have to see him. I get steal his uh, contact information from you because I watched that show and I'm like, I got to speak to that guy. That's so oh, man, such an interesting story. Yeah, he's he's a very interesting human being, man. Um, I think you guys would have a great conversation. Definitely reach out to Frankie so you can get that contact info. Absolutely. All right. Well, then, while we're on the the topic of that, so tell people where they can find the Reps to Responders site and then how they can access Inside the Labyrinth. Uh, yeah. So Reps to Responders. Uh, it's uh, on Instagram, so reps underscore four underscore responders. Um, if you go on the Instagram, there's a link in the bio that takes you right to the website. Um, and we also have Inside the Labyrinth podcast that is also available um, through the Reps for Responders page. Um, we're on all streaming platforms. We are on Apple Music, uh, Google Play, uh, Anchor, uh, you name it, we're, we're on it. Um, and you know, we're doing really well right now. We just want to continue to keep it going. Um, you know, we're helping people at the same time, you know, we run seminars and such. And as soon as, you know, some of this COVID stuff uh, starts to free up, we'll, 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 we'll start to do more of those. Beautiful. All right. Well then transition to some closing questions. The first one I always ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed or something completely different. Ooh, um, the four agreements. That's a great book or, uh, the Untethered Soul. I always tell people to read those two books. Those help me greatly. All right. Same question. What about a movie and or documentary? Ooh, um, movie. Um, if you haven't got a chance to watch American Skin, it's, it just came out. I think you can get it on uh, like Hulu or or our Prime Amazon. Um, take take a look at that movie, especially if you're you're on this forefront. I think it. Uh, gives you good insight as to what's going on right now and in, in, in present day and gives you both sides of the story. I think, uh, I don't know who directed it, but um, I think it gave a, a, a really good, um, it told a good story because I think it, it wasn't too far one side. It, it, it kind of gave you right down the middle. You just have to be able to look at it that way. But American Skin, if you haven't watched it, please do so. Beautiful. And is that a documentary or a, a movie movie? It, it's a movie. Um, they shot it like uh, it's almost like almost like a documentary style, um, the way it was uh, filmed. But it, it is a phenomenal movie, man. I watched it the other night and um, I was moved. Beautiful. I'll make sure I watch that. And what about a documentary? Any of those that you love? I'm going to go back to the 13th. Um, that is a great, great, great documentary. Um, and it's attached to the Khalif Broder one. That's how I got into 13th. I was watching the Khalif Broder documentary, um, and um, and that brought me to 13th. So I would tell if you if you if you haven't watched the 13th, watch the Khalif Broder and then then watch 13th. Yeah, Khalif's story is so so tragic, and and the fact that he you know even got out and then just basically succumbed to all the stuff that he went through prison and ended up taking his own life is just heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, then, next question. Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Ooh. Um, see if you can get in contact with Adam LaRoe. I've had Adam on the show. Oh, yeah. Adam yeah, twice. <laughs> uh, twice? Okay. I, lo- I, I just love his stuff. Um, 
and he, you know, I'm just, I've always been in awe of guys that were, um, you know, special forces and things of that nature. Um, he's a very, very interesting dude. I've never met him. I just really into his stuff. Um, since you had him on here twice, damn dude, I would have to say James R. Fitzgerald. If you can get him, please get him. Um, he's a, he's a brilliant, brilliant mind. And I, I think with your questions and, uh, the way, like, uh, the way you ask the questions, it'll make for a great conversation. I think people would be uh, on the edge of their seats because he has uh, a, a, a ex, you know, extensive, you know, criminal justice history, you know, from working in a, in a, in a small police department to then, you know, be, you know, so being a big fish uh, in a little pond to being, you know, uh, on the, the FBI task force. Yeah, I, th- I think that'd be a, a great conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And another one um, I just watched. Oh my god, Night Stalker! Have you seen that yet? No, I haven't seen Night Stalker. Oh my god! So it's about the uh, the Night Stalker, so the serial killer in L.A. in the eighties, I think it was. And there was okay. there was one police officer who helped catch that you know murderer, but also he was the one that caught the Hillside Strangler as well. So oh, I, wow. I, I got to okay. see if I can dig in and find him because I mean, again, you talk about life of trauma, my God, and all the horrendous stuff that they've seen in their career. So yeah, be another interesting yeah. one, I think. Yeah, I love to pick the great uh, the the brains of guys that have had like that much time on and and done such great things within their profession. Yeah. So I'm I'm like a nerd like, like that. So <laughs> well, that's how you learn, though, you know. So yeah, exactly. All right. Well, then, last question before we make sure everyone knows how to find you personally. Um, what do you do to decompress? Ooh, what do I do to decompress? Um, mm, so meditation, that's like a big thing with me. Um, a friend of mine put me onto an app called Headspace, which is a guided meditation app. And um, that helps me out a lot. Um, and, I, and I journal a lot. And if I can't f- write, I have audio logs that I do. Um, usually it's on my commute home from work. So if there's a traumatic situation that I went through and I can't, if I can't write about it, I just talk in my audio logs and then I, you know, I'll revisit it at some point just to see where my brain was at that point in time. Um, so yeah. Love it. Yeah. I use Headspace. I use it this morning. I, I wish I could get them as a sponsor because I mean, our audience is exactly who needs it too. So I mean, yeah, yeah. So beautiful. All right. Well then if people want to reach out to you, what are the best places to find you? Uh, the best place to find me is on Instagram. Um, my handle is the real Jumpman J spelled as it sounds. Um, and that's where I am mostly. I'm not really on Twitter um, or TikTok or anything like that. It's really just Instagram. And, um, you know, I have a link tree there. You can listen to um, other podcasts that I've been on and other things that I'm involved in. So Instagram. Beautiful. Well, Jay, I want to say thank you so much. It's been such a, a great conversation. And, you know, with someone like you, multiple departments in, you know, in the Northeast, special operations. I mean, it's been a, a really fascinating lens to, to learn from. So thank you so much to, for uh, taking the time to talk to us today. Oh, man, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.